What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Core Consults RX Podcast. Cole and I find solo again today. Just cannot get the timing right with old AJ. No more vacation, though? No, no, this one was actually my fault. I even checked the text messages to, to, uh, to make sure I was in the wrong. Because <laughs> I told him we were recording Thursday because our days... That's what we had. Yeah. So I was like, all right, never mind. That's we're mixing fault. it up. Mixing it up. Gotta, we're keeping him on his toes. So, yeah, when I tell him the wrong date, it's probably my fault. <laughs> so he just shows up to my house on Thursday. Right. But, uh, yeah, so um, for those of you watching the video, that's why we're not using our fancy camera setup. It's just the one the one ugly angle of calling myself. So um, no no computer sharing, you know, sharing my screens. That's unfortunate. AJ's vital to our process. He, he really is. Don't tell nobody tell him that, but yeah, <laughs> he doesn't listen. It's okay. It's true. <laughs> so, uh, we're doing a, an episode today. It's a little bit different. Um, we're going to yeah. kind of talk through some of the new drug approvals because it's January, uh, at least when we're recording it's January 24th and we've already had a few pretty big drug approvals this year. Yeah. We're talking 2023 drug approvals because about a year ago this time we talked about drug approvals from the previous year. Mm. Which you would think was what we were going to do was to go, like go over twenty twenty two and see what was approved in this past year as like a, you know, a reminisce big, on a what's big happening. Summary. Big summary. But we realized nope. that if you do it in January and just talk about twenty twenty three, there's so much less, so much less to talk about, to worry about. Yeah. <laughs> so we were like, oh, that's perfect. But it's perfect here we because are. there have been three interesting drugs approved. Mm-hmm. Two of them novel, mm-hmm. like the, what FDA would be consider novel drugs. Um, one of them was just approved this morning. Of the that we're recording, so I think it was a, I think it it was actually or the press wow. the press release was, but I think it was officially approved because I thought the same thing. I was like, "Where yeah. this is the first, the closest we've ever gotten," but it was twenty. It was the twentieth. The twentieth. Yeah, we were late. So that was on four Friday. It's basically old news. Well, so we'll just stop the recording. The press release that I saw came out. This yeah, morning, no, so. me as well. I've read it literally riding to the from the parking yeah. lot to the hospital this morning to go to work. So um, we're going to talk about uh, it. We're going to see if any of them matter. Yeah, we'll see. Do any of them matter? That's the question. Mm. Are they practice changing? We'll find out. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, I'm not super. We'll see if it's excited. One, one out of three, two out of three, three out of three, or none. None. So. And yeah, and then we'll have to wait till February to see. <laughs> They're what comes all terrible. Out. <laughs> At the end of episode. So uh, what did we say we we're going to start off with? I already forgot. I think the new SGLT two inhibitor. So you you guys know we are big fans of most of the SGLT two inhibitors, um, and but we got a new one coming out. We do. Bexagliflozin, uh, under the brand name Brinzavi, I believe. Brinzavi. Brinzavi. I like V's. two V's. I do like that. That's why that's... are two V's not a W? Well, but then there's why a space in between v? the top. Why isn't it a double V? That's a good point. Hmm. Maybe because it was originally in cursive and they just couldn't tell. That's a good point. But when I do my uppercase W, it's more like two V's. Uh, you know, it's yeah, like yeah. Two U's. Anyways, but I do like the two V's and Brinzavi. It's very, very savvy. Very cool. Yeah. Savvy. So this is uh, an SGLT2 inhibitor, like Cole said. Uh, believe it or not, actually, humans were not the first uh, species to have this approved for. Um, in December, it was approved in felines. I saw that. So if your cat has diabetes, you can give them an SGLT2 inhibitor. I believe that's the first one for, um, at least for felines. So um, somebody correct me if I'm wrong on that. But the uh, definitely uh, interesting there. And then we get approval a, a month later. We test it on the cats, see how it goes. I hear a lot about cat diabetes. It's like the, it's like the unspoken epidemic is cat diabetes. The second leading cause of feline related death. I'm just kidding. I don't think that's it's true. It probably Maybe. is. Maybe. I mean, my cat is extremely overweight. I feel like if you're eating rodents and things like that, it seems like a low carb. 
My or, cat does not eat rodents. No, my you don't cat, feed him rodents. My cat eats dry and wet. So that's why. So cat food. Diabetes only as exists. As you can possibly eat. Only exists in uh, domesticated, domesticated cats. Because we're feeding them nonsense. Yeah. You don't see lions out there with diabetes. You never see a lion with diabetes. <laughs> at least not that I've seen. And I've spent a lot of time around lions. <laughs> All right. Anyways, <laughs> enough of that. So the uh, this medication um, it got approved, and uh, you know we have another option for treating diabetes. Uh, it is it's only approved in patients with diabetes at this point. It's obviously brand new. Um, what were your first thoughts? Yeah, um, I mean, my my first thoughts were, I guess, as far as diabetes goes, just in, strictly for talking sugar and A one C reduction, similar to the others, mm-hmm. which is which is relatively modest. We don't really look at SGLT2s as being like huge A1C reducers and whatnot. Um, but then, you know, we know that we have a lot of other benefits with some of the other SGLT2s, uh, with some of the cardiovascular outcome data, um, some of the heart failure data, uh, and then safety and kidney disease. So they did look at um, Benzavi. Uh, they, they had, I think, in the 23 trials or whatever that they went through, there was... 300 patients with kidney disease or something like that, but it did get approved down to, um, EGFR of 30, 30, right. Yeah. Um, which, which is interesting. I I guess they had to do that for safety purposes and whatnot, but now that we're like kind of allowing the the Jarians and Virginia to down to 20, I thought that was kind of interesting, but uh, that's more heart failure and stuff. Obviously you would lose the efficacy anyway, as far as A1C lowering, but it is definitely down to, to 30 with this one. And, not lower, at least as of now. But my biggest question is, does it have the, um, as far as diabetes goes, does it have the cardiovascular data that um, the other two big ones do, empagliflozin and um, canagliflozin, Jardians? And- yeah, and epagliflozin if you look at the heart failure and stuff. And looking at heart failure. So- Un- unfortunately, ertagliflozin didn't didn't quite meet uh, anything as far as endpoints that was too Exciting. Yes, turns out there is a little-known fourth SGLT2 before this one that nobody ever talks about. Yeah. The, uh, the and, poor, poor middle child that nobody ever pays attention to. Right. Um, but, yeah, so they already did their cardiovascular, at least one, at least their initial one, which... A is, cardiovascular. I thought it was kind of interesting, too, because the other ones came out, you know, with their initial data, and then as post-mortem, which I'm, I'm, I imagine they would probably do another follow-up, maybe. Um, but this one kind of came out... It was at least the, the top line data was published before right. the the drug. At least you know I, I we couldn't find uh, the actual publication of the entire um, data set. We found like the abstracts from like where it was pre- presented back in I think twenty twenty for mm-hmm. uh, the it's ADA. A while ago. Um, and you know I looked through all the results and stuff are on clinicaltrials.gov, but there's not like a, at least that we could find. Um, we spent literally. Minutes. 30 minutes looking for this. Um, but it was the publication, actually, where you could go through everything and the supplemental data and all that. Um, but, yeah, they one of the studies that they're calling the, the best trial, um, which is <laughs> turns out, it might turns not out be. a bit of a leap. And uh, did, did they, as they point out, was uh, had modest degrees in systolic blood pressure lowering. Um, and, you know what, they were so proud to say non-inferiority for cardiovascular outcomes for, for MACE. <laughs> The problem is not the highlight, of course, that's what they were going oh, for, right? Of course, because that's what the FDA requires, right? But they failed to mention is that it did not meet superiority, right? Um, and so now it's like, well, is this another ertogliflozin, right? So, um, a little bit about the best trial, um, it went from 2015 to 2019, 1700 patients, and then they followed them for a median of 30 months. 
patients were 40 years or older with diabetes, A1Cs between 7 and 11. In this study, the EGFR was over 45, so they were, they were um, excluded if it was under 45. And as far as the comorbidities go, the cardiovascular comorbidities in particular, 63% of the patients had ASCVD. So the majority of the patients, this would be considered secondary prevention for. Uh, 14% had a history of heart failure, and then 23% were over 55 years old with at least two cardiovascular risk factors. So they'd be consider, considered higher risk for um, from a primary prevention standpoint. Um, but as you go through, you can see in the results that they um, met their primary endpoint of non-inferiority to the um, composite of cardiovascular outcomes, but they did not pursue superiority, which means that they knew yeah. they weren't going to get it. Yeah, I mean, unless they're, unless they're planning a, just an awesome you know, reveal a reveal of the, the new data that they're keeping under wraps, I, I think... Um, there's also there it it was very few cardiovascular events reported anyway so you know placebo and um, the actual treatment arm wasn't really that different and that's one thing with these studies I'd have to go back and look at all the specifics of Impareg um, but what 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 was the if you can recall what was the risk the like as far as how many primary how many secondary prevention they had does it mirror this one well, I remember that being a topic of conversation in the past I have the only one that stands out to me is the is the trulicity the GLP one trulicity data because they had like I think over seventy percent of people were primary and that stood out but I I feel like usually it's the majority I, I just can't remember to what extent right you know, the, but it, I think the but usually if you usually, had the majority who already have ASCBD then they're pretty high risk for right. a second event and so that would work in this drug's favor. So they can't use the excuse that it was a lot of primary right. patients. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so and and unfortunately there was, like you said, sixty percent of or more than sixty percent were from secondary. So yeah. yeah. Um that was a little disappointing to say because I thought maybe we were gonna have another good option on our hands for, you know, prevention of heart failure and all that good stuff. Right. So maybe more data will come out um as, as time goes on. But um definitely uh you know, it's one of those, now I, I don't know, I haven't seen anything about price, so I don't know, like, I, that's one thing that um, the article flows in the Stoglatro did was they just made their drug, like, a couple hundred dollars AWP cheaper, mm-hmm. um, and that was their big claim to fame, and they got a couple of Medicaid plans on board and stuff to make that their exclusive preferred agent, but, um, you know, maybe, but then that mm-hmm. gets into the whole realm of should you be able to do that? Yeah. Uh, um, that, that whole ethics yeah, situation. That, yeah, that's a good term for it, ethics. <laughs> so, um, I, I'm, I was excited when I saw this, when I read the, you know, the, the headline of it got approved and then quickly became less excited as I read on. I mean, overall, it's not a, you wouldn't consider it a bad drug. I mean, it's reasonably safe. They did reference an increased risk for... Um, Amputation, yeah. small, what are the small digit or whatever? So there were um, there were twenty three patients that had amputations, which was statistically significant higher compared to the placebo arm. Yeah. So it's eight point three percent versus five point one per uh, events per thousand patient years, and so um, that was kind of interesting that yeah. we saw that again because that's the whole thing with Invokana mm-hmm. that they ended up getting that box warning got removed, um, and so kind of this pops up uh, up again. So that was kind of interesting. But yeah, they did mention that it was, so 23 patients, so 15 were amputations of the toe and midfoot. Um, and then eight were amputations above or below the knee. So 
you know, again, it's the whole we've joked about it before, but it's like it wasn't. I mean, when we see amputation, we're talking about a couple toes. <laughs> it's like, yeah, but I mean, you're still cutting stuff off. You're still, cut, you're still losing. Yeah, I body feel like parts. that's not ideal not in any setting, want. regardless of the amount. So, apart from that, it's a reasonably safe drug and works about as well as we thought that the other SGLT2s did before we got better data. So it's not a bad drug. It's just, we have better yeah. things that are like the exact same. So, and then you can, then you get the whole like, well, if there is, if there are better drugs like Jardians or why even bother? Right. So I don't know. It's uh like I said, kind of, I was a little bit disappointed with this one, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the, the other side effects were the same kind of thing you'd expect to see. And, uh, you know, they even mentioned like Fournier's gangrene and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, so this one, I'm, I'm not sure when it's actually going to be available. Um, the dosing, I think, is what, 20 milligrams a day? Yeah, that, that, that was interesting because they only had the one dose. Yeah. Um, and so they, uh, they, yeah, they, only, they only did uh, the, the 20 milligram dose is all they got approved. So at least there's no drug, you know, titration or, or uh, whatnot. So that's one thing, I guess, from ease of use standpoint. Say that's us being positive. We're looking on the bright Look side. Look at us go. So, yeah. Anything else with, with this one, though, for now? No. I mean, it's out there. Just uh, You just might see it about as much as you do Scalatro, which <laughs> yeah, is not much. so not a whole lot. The uh, I will say, too, if for those of you who are, like, wanting some kind of a resource to keep up with new drug approvals, um, there's several of them out there. Uh, but one of the ones that I like that's really easy is uh, drugs.com. You can subscribe, and they have, like, the – regular you know patient friendly uh version and they have like the the pro uh you know part of their website which is funny the way they word that but that has the new drug approvals and stuff that's like in the pipeline and so um, they'll send you an email if you subscribe to that um, just give me your email they'll uh they'll send you basically a, a, a update whenever there's a new drug approved so you can be Right there, and when whenever new stuff comes out, you know exactly what you can see all these cancer drugs approved and say, I have no idea what that is, yeah, and are and delete it, yeah. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> I actually know a little more about cancer stuff now, do you? Nice, well, I just you know, we deal with some stuff, so but uh, yeah, so that's that one. Um, you want to uh, do the, the inhaler next, yeah, let's let's talk about the inhaler. So, this is not a novel drug, it's just a new combination of two drugs that we had before. And you might could guess why they would um, combine these kind of a reference to some things we've been talking about somewhat for the last what two, two and a half years. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a new branded combination of albuterol and budesonide called Air Supra that was recently approved um, uh, for the prevention and treatment of bronchoconstriction to reduce the risk of asthma exacerbations only in patients 18 and older this was approved which is weird because it was that's the approval was 18 because the the studies were down to four the big um wasn't that uh, this is a press release i'm looking at but i don't have the the mandela trial i think was one of the first big ones and i believe that one had young patient i could be totally off on that i thought it was they looked at adolescent patients too uh, children between four uh, and less than 12 years of age only made up of 2.7%. So maybe that's why. Maybe they have to do one that's more robust. Yeah. But uh, so they did have some younger patients, though. But yeah, so the whole idea here is that we're all used to albuterol. So we know what the data with from Motorol and an ICS looks like. And it just so happens to be the 
the budesonide was also the one that's in the most widely used for motorol formulation with uh, Simbacort. But um, basically, they you know are attaching the ICS to the albuterol now, and then using that as the reliever. So in the study, the one of the uh, one of the first ones that got published in 2022 was the Mandela trial, and they were looking at the the combination. Um, of albuterol plus budesonide at a higher dose, uh, low dose, and then albuterol by itself, uh, while they're in, in being used only for as needed, like rescue inhaler use. Yes. The patients were also on their LABA ICS combination um, at low, you know, moderate, and high doses, and they continued whatever their initial like maintenance therapy was and just transitioned over to this for the rescue inhaler. So, a couple things that's kind of interesting about that is, you know, with the Simbacort, uh, you know, method, the one of the big things that we, we see with that is you, if you are going to use the fomoterol budesonide as the rescue inhaler, they also want that as the controller as well. So the patient's not flipping back and forth between the the two inhalers. And I think the idea here is that, like, well, if you're already used to using albuterol, now you can just have one that has some anti-inflammatory effects but still use your same controller inhaler. But then you're right back into the issue of you have two inhalers. Right. So it's like... What's the point? Yeah. I mean, I I, I get the whole everyone likes albuterol because we're we're comfortable with albuterol. But, I mean, I I don't like the fact that you're back to, you know, having one... Because I feel like that could easily get... Depending, you know, I mean, it's. I think it's going to be in an HFA uh, device, but I feel like that could still get confusing if you know it's a new inhaler, and then they have the you know Advair or Brio or something that they're taking on a regular basis. Then I still feel that there's room for getting them confused, and then you have the whole issue with the LABA being used over or overuse of the LABA. Right. So um, that was the first thing that kind of popped into my head about it. What What are your initial thoughts? I mean, apart from that. It can be reasonably used mm-hmm. in the situation that you described. It's just kind of, it's just like, why not just do the one that doesn't have two inhalers? Yeah. Yeah. It is kind of, kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, apart from that, it seems like, you know, it's just two drugs we're aware of. We know why that they combined them and they put them into a combination to make it slightly more convenient if you're going to use these two. Um, Ultimately, it's not like practice changing or anything like that. Yeah, and they did use uh, um, 160 uh, micrograms of budesonide and 80 micrograms of budesonide for the low dose, um, whereas the the Fomoterol ICS, um, I think it was the SMART trial, I believe, they used um, 200 uh, milligrams. I think maybe Sigma and SMART, but um, START, not SMART. Um, the START trial did use 200 micrograms of budesonide, so a little bit higher dose. But um, in that Mandela uh, or Mandela um, trial, they they did show that the the higher dose was the one that was superior to albuterol alone. Because I don't I don't think there was a significant uh, difference between the lower dose. Right. So um, that that kind of makes sense, but I feel like they almost did that in a sense of like it's less overall steroid exposure because we have one sixty, but we don't have the two hundred microgram budesonide in the United States anyway. The right. the Canadian the was it the the turbo hailer mm-hmm. um, version of uh, budesonide is what's in or Simbacort rather is what's uh, is the two hundred microgram version that's in Canada and other countries. Another example of them making the inhaler sound cooler than they are. Right, turbo turbo hailer. Air Supra. I don't know that that's. I don't know. Yeah, I don't like it. Air Supra. <laughs> is is it going to be in a HFA inhaler? I... Um, 
Or they just say inhaled aerosol. I think it's an aerosol. But um, but yeah, so that's one thing about you know with the having to use two different drugs. Meter dose inhaler. It is okay. So the other thing I'm kind of wondering about that just in I I don't know that they'll ever I'm I'm assuming they will never do a head to head trial. At least it's it's sponsored by Big Pharma. Um, where they're going to take out butyrol versus fomoterol, um, and you know use the same steroid. My but my thought is with the fomoterol, one of the things that we like about it is that it is still classified as a LABA, even though it has a really quick onset of action like albuterol. So it's almost like you're with fermoterol, you're getting the best parts of, of the, you know, of, of the drug, I guess, where you're getting that short onset, um, just like albuterol, but then you're getting the duration of action like you would with the longer acting. So I, I don't know. I feel like it, at least, you know, from what I've seen so far, I kind of would still prefer the, the Simbicort. I think unless it's just a matter of you, the patient doesn't like having to take extra puffs of their controller when they're feeling out of breath. Right. But I, I don't know. It's kind of interesting. There's a uh, um, really good uh, kind of journal club article um, on the website called rxteach.com. I hadn't heard of that. Did you? Mm-hmm. I, I saw the same thing, but no, I had not heard of it. Did Art. you see who the author was of the, the Mandela trial no. for the journal club? It was um, the uh, Kristen, her, her maiden name was Ingle. She was on our podcast when she was a resident. Oh, was she? Yeah. Right? And so I saw, I was like, oh, we know her. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And so I'll link that in there. So that's hilarious. I saw the same article. <laughs> so uh, thanks, Kristen, for giving us some, we're using your, your journal club. <laughs> but um, good for her for publishing this. Yeah, that's great. But uh, yeah, she goes through and, go, and kind of just gives a summary of the study itself. And then. I um, a podcast version on there yeah yeah she does she does yeah so look at her go awesome and and she kind of does a really good breakdown of the primary outcomes and secondary but um they were looking at the primary uh, outcome was basically the um, decreased you know that exacerbation um occurring then the secondary outcome was the annualized rate of severe asthma exacerbations like overall and then the total um systemic glucocorticoid exposure for asthma and uh that in, uh, they measured in prednisone equivalents and then also response at week 24 on the appropriate validated uh, AQLQ. So some d- definitely shows that the, the albuterol alone was um, inferior to the high-dose uh, budesonide-albuterol combo. Um, side effect-wise, uh, basically adverse events, um, 5.2% of patients in the uh, in the treatment arm versus 4.5 in the albuterol alone, comparing high-dose budesonide to albuterol. So it wasn't like anything too crazy as far as side effects go, which, you know, I figured like we kind of expected that, maybe more occurrence of thrush or something like that. Right. But um, definitely not something that I'd be, I'd be more worried about the additional albuterol doses. But, um, but yeah, so um, I'll, I'll link that, that article in case any of you are wanting to check that out. But uh, so that one's going to be out there. And, you know, I, again, I don't think for me personally, it's going to change much. Um, I probably will still use the, or like, you know, want my patients on the, the Simbacort um, is both the, 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 the rescue and the, the, the maintenance, but right. we'll see. Yeah. It's going to be interesting. We will see. I feel like it'd be a lot easier to sell that one though, to, to people who are really nervous about Making the actual switch. Yeah, because I, f- I do feel like that's still a thing with among some providers is they don't, they're like, well, put albuterol. Right, they like to see albuterol in there. They that's do. a good point. I bet you that w- this will sell. That's probably, I can't imagine why else they would 
have pushed this. Yeah. You know, it's not like it's going to be ineffective or anything, yeah. but uh, I bet you it'll sell for a reason, that reason. They oh, sell on the thick oh, rescue. I, yeah. It's what I always use for that. Yeah. So it's that That part of it's probably, I guess, a smart move from a business standpoint. Right. But I still wish I, we could get some kind of head to head data with Fomoterol and Albuterol because I feel like Fomoterol might be a little bit more effective, but who knows? Yeah. All right. Last but not least. Last but not least, it's probably the most notable or at one. At least the ones that we're going to talk about. <laughs> or at least the ones that we're going to talk about. Probably the most notable, probably the one that you might have already seen in the news a little bit, especially following the last Alzheimer's drug that was approved. But um, lecanemab uh, is branded as Lakimbi, uh, is a new um, infusion medication to treat early. Uh, when I say early, I mean mild Alzheimer's disease. Um, so we talked about this before i don't know if we did a dedicated episode or not but we definitely talked fairly extensively about aducanumab uh the previous infusion that was uh had an accelerated approval for alzheimer's disease i think we did a full alzheimer's disease episode I we believe. probably did and talked yeah. about it and, and took advantage and talked about it then mm-hmm. um which you know the findings of that were essentially some decrease in um, beta amyloid plaques which is the marker that we look at for alzheimer's disease um but it was very expensive, and then there were um, significant adverse effects to be concerned about, frequent risk of brain bleed, not all of it significant brain bleed, but anytime you hear brain bleed, you get concerned. Uh, but definitely a few, a, a smaller percentage of those were severe and, and led to, to death. So because of that, um, there and, were a lot of concerns. And the one of the studies, members showed efficacy in one didn't, that was the other big right. controversy. Even the studies about over whether it worked for beta amyloid plaques, mm-hmm. I think it was the Engage and the Emerge trial. Were controversial, and then there were people um, resigning from yeah, FDA it was committees, like a big deal. and it was a whole deal. So this one is not as controversial because, um, well, we'll go through it, but it also got a accelerated approval um, from the FDA. Uh, it was approved in 2023. It is a once-every-two-week infusion versus aducanumab, which was once-every-four-weeks. Um, it's still expensive, Um Estimated at about $26,500 a year. Um, so you could imagine it would, it would be for the insured if the insurance um, approved it or for those who could pay. But um, we'll kind of get into what the study looked like that ended up, one of the studies that, that looked at it to get it approved. And, um, you know, to me, I'm thinking a lot about the safety aspect, especially because that was such a concern with the aducanumab. But um, what are these drugs? Like, what do they do? Um, there are a monoclonal antibody, as you might have guessed, that bind with high affinity to um, amyloid beta soluble protofibrils, which is uh, effectively going to uh, the idea is for it to decrease the amyloid beta plaques, which we presume, based on um, uh, information we've been given, that this is going to hopefully delay uh, the progression of Alzheimer's disease. Similar with aducanumab, it's intended, or at least the studies were in patients who we're in the early stages of Alzheimer's. And so there is an early onset Alzheimer's disease, and that's why this was confusing me a little bit. Um, but I think what they're, when they say early Alzheimer's disease, which is literally in the title of the study, they're talking about <laughs> early stages. And so like... Mild early, cognitive decline. Right, mild cognitive decline, but has evidence of beta amyloid plaques. Yeah, on imaging. On imaging. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this had... Um, it, this trial in particular was phase three people 50 to 90 years of age who were in this mild cognitive impairment or mild dementia uh, stage of Alzheimer's disease with evidence of amyloid plaques on PET scan. 
or uh, they could have cerebral spinal fluid testing. Um, they were either given uh, Lakimbi or uh, placebo, and then it was going to go for 18 months, a year and a half. And the primary endpoint was to look at a change in the clinical dementia rating sum of boxes score, which is a very odd name for a score. But there's three primary, uh, I guess, memory tests that would be used and might be used um, in a lot of the studies and in a lot of the studies in dementia. This is one um, you've probably heard of the MMSE, the Mini Men- Mental State Exam. Um, that's another, and then the MOCA exam is another common one that I'm probably more I've, I've seen more often. I think isn't one of them one of those two are like you have, you're supposed to like pay some kind of fee to use right because they're copyrighted or something. One of them is possible. I, I can't I remember which one it is, but I feel like I mean people do it anyway. But I feel like there's something about one of those that you. Have I mean, to I know our institution uses the Mocha, yeah. for example. So maybe it's the other one. I have it, to look it up. It if only be, Google was a thing. The MSCs are used in like other, you know, cognitive like uh, like other studies. Just in, yeah. not related to Alzheimer's. Yeah, I don't know, but um, yeah. So those three are the ones that are typically shown up in the studies, though. So they were looking at um, the change of baseline of that was the primary endpoint, but they did have a number of secondary endpoints related to the change in amyloid burden on PET scan, uh, and then the score on a number of different Alzheimer's disease rating scales. Um, I'll name them because I think that it's important to have heard what they are. What they are: Alzheimer's disease assessment scale. Alzheimer's disease composite score and Alzheimer's disease cooperative study activities of daily living for mild cognitive impairment uh, score. So these are different things related to cognitive impairment, but also related to activities of daily living. So they actually enrolled a lot of patients, 1,795 patients with Alzheimer's disease. I thought that was a lot. Yeah. Um, Split into two arms. And um, the uh, primary outcome, that initial score that we talked about, the mean change of baseline was less, as in they didn't progress as far in the lecanemab group versus placebo, and it was considered statistically significant. They didn't like have like cognitive decline as rapidly? They didn't have as rapid cognitive yeah. decline based on that score, and it was statistically significant. Um, in a So that's primary outcome. But then they say in a sub-study, um, I didn't look like super deep into this, but it says in a sub-study involving 700 of the participants, there was a greater reduction in brain amyloid burden with lecanemab than placebo. I wonder why they have to specify it that way as opposed to, like, I mean, this is a secondary outcome. But was it patients that were considered to have more, like, in this criteria, more advanced Alzheimer's versus, possible. like, I, we should have looked into that We should have looked into it because my, my presumption was that it was just maybe they couldn't get Pet scans of everybody. Well, I think that they have to as part of the criteria. Maybe initially, but maybe they couldn't get adequate follow-up pet scans. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. We, we should have looked. But yeah. um, that is something. We should have looked. <laughs> something they mentioned. Uh, missed opportunity for sure. Um, but what I'm kind of wondering more about is um, the safety. And so w- with the... Well, real real quick oh, about that, just to throw this out, because you mentioned the... It, it you slow the decline and all that. They, if you read the, you know, the reporting, uh, they say 27%, you know, compared with placebo. Um, but the absolute difference was 0.45 points on that, um, on that, uh, CDR 
some of boxes. Right. So uh, there's a, another article that's like an editorial that's published in Lancet um, for, on December 3rd. And basically it's called, if you want to look it up, um, the Lacanumab for Alzheimer's disease, tempering hype and hope. Yeah. And uh, basically just kind of going through that clarity AD, which is the study Cole's referring to. And um, just kind of pointing out a couple things about it. But so they mentioned the 27% and that's 0.45 absolute difference in the actual score. Um, but then it kind of goes on and says, uh, that there was a 2019 study su- suggested that the minimal clinically important difference for CDR some boxes was 0.98 for people with mild cognitive impairment and presumed Alzheimer's etiology and 1.63 points for those with mild Alzheimer's disease. So, you know, th- th- and he also points that then we'll I'll bring this up after you mention your um, adverse effects, but I thought that was kind of interesting that it's like one, it's only approved for patients that already have, you know, mild to, you know, or mild, you know, dysfunction, cognitive dysfunction. And then on top of that, it, it based on some other schools of thought, as far as what a clinically relevant change is, it's not even half of like what we right. need. Yeah. And I, I agree with that. I think there's real questions about whether you can consider it clinically, clinically relevant because the statistical difference is not necessarily suss that out though that's interesting some of the the point values they give because the the baseline score on that um, cdr was 3.2 and so interesting that they would say the decline of 0.98 or 1.3 would be considered you know cdr was three the it says the mean cdr baseline was approximately 3.2 in both groups really i thought the i thought three was like severe dementia that's what it says. Hmm. Where, uh, which one are you on the actual mm-hmm. article itself? Yeah. Um, we'll need to look at that real quick. But um, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. So whatever it is, it's, it's interesting that um, I'm also interested in how they determine that that how that is clinically significant. What I'll say is, but you know, it's easy to. I think it is easy to discount the benefit because even the, the they're tempered in their conclusions to say that it was a. Um, just a moderately less decline in cognitive function over this period of time. So this um, is baseline 1.21 versus 1.66 with placebo? That's what I see for the change in baseline. Oh, change from baseline. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm an idiot. This is the first, this is the most research we've ever done on the air. <laughs> um, sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, I think it's it's easy to, to look at the difference in question whether it's clinically significant and... Um, and maybe discount it, but for what I, I've seen people with ALS pay huge sums of money, even when they didn't necessarily have that much expendable income, um, to take some of these ALS medications that with questionable benefit as well. So I, I, I think you would see a fair amount of people um, ready and willing to use this, even with the moderate potential for benefit. Um, I guess the question just really comes with more you know, Medicaid or uh, Medicare services and whether they're going to cover this from a national standpoint or other insurance companies that are going to cover this for a large proportion of patients and pay huge amounts of money there. They will have to make a determination as to whether it's, it's worth it. But anyways, back to some of the safety. So the most common um, adverse event was infusion related reactions, which you would imagine with infusions. Um, But there were some imaging abnormalities that I don't think can be discounted. So, um, some edema um, 
in the brain, a little bit of fluid in the brain, and also effusions too. So for the most part, these were considered more mild than with aducanumab uh, at this point. Of course, it's still early. So just kind of hot off the presses, there was a, a case report of an individual receiving this medication who had multiple, multiple cerebral hemorrhages um, and died, but it was specifically a patient who hit, was having a stroke and was receiving TPA, right? Um, so that's kind of more of a specific instance. So it's not like they were just having hemorrhaging from this medication. They were also receiving TPA for a stroke and it resulted in multiple hemorrhages, but that's pretty recent. Um, I see what I did. Okay. So just so we're clear, sorry to interrupt you again, but no, I just don't want to lose this. The, uh, the, the CDR sum of boxes is the one that's the zero to 18 score. And then it's the, the CDR score. That's the global, um, Rating, the global version, I guess, is the one that's uh, zero to three. I see. So, because that they only went up to one on that one, so I was like super confused. I so see. that's why. Okay. So the Sorry. sum of boxes yes, was that, three points yes. out of eighteen. So that's what how they would consider that mild yeah. impairment. Look at us um, go. We're learning together as we go. We're figuring it out. Um, Sorry, I interrupted you like fifteen times this episode. Go ahead. So yeah, so basically over eighteen months, just going back to those numbers, the lecanemab group went from three point two to four point four, and then the placebo group went from three point two to four point eight six. So it is a pretty subtle difference. Even just looking at those numbers, obviously you have to go into what they're actually asking and what those things mean. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, I mean, anybody, it's just a conversation you'd have to have with a patient and see if they're willing to consider this. But if a patient can't afford it or is questioning it or is concerned about the side effects, it's, it's not like you would be keeping them from like a life changing mm-hmm. therapy type of deal. And that, that Lance article, he kind of closes with, uh, and this is, I'm quoting, but um, a decision is yet to be made on cost, um, but is likely to be prohibitive for low-income and middle-income countries where most people with dementia live, you know, statist- worldwide statistically. Um, many health systems lack the infrastructure to enable widespread rollout of lecanemab. Um, the availability of PET imaging to determine treatment eligibility is patchy. Memory clinics will need the personnel to facilitate biweekly intravenous drug infusions and the capacity for regular MRI scanning to detect ARI uh, A um, will need to be scaled up. And so the results, they, he says the results on uh, lecanemab might well pave the way for much needed treatments for Alzheimer's disease. But for now, the key public health message for Alzheimer's disease remains that um, basically laid out in the 2020 Lancet Commission on Dementia Prevention, Intervention and Care. So it's, we're looking for modifiable risk factors for dementia, hypertension, smoking, diabetes, obesity, things like that to maintain brain health. Um, this is not or at least at this point doesn't is not we can't say it's a game changer like i think it was kind of being doubted initially right and so the those aria that you referenced is the amyloid related imaging abnormalities like edema and effusions which are the kind of concerning can can be relatively benign but are kind of the concerning um, situations well that guy sounds like a pessimist he does he does but i mean i feel like it's also like it's easy in this type of disease state where we've, they've been waiting for so long for the, them to get some kind of a, you know, cha- game-changing drug that I think people get so excited when they see stuff. Plus, you yeah. know, you're getting reports from the company that's making, so of course they're going to hype it up. So I think maybe in this particular case, maybe he's just trying to, like, calm people down before everybody gets too hyped up about right. something that, and not read the data. 
No, he's definitely yeah, he's definitely throwing some some shade, some some water on the so fire. I'm, I'm gonna but, say uh, somebody didn't get asked to be a speaker for that, <laughs> yeah, right. for that drug company. No, I mean here's here's what I would say. I would say that it feels like it's moving at about the same pace as ALS, um, but it is great to have advancements that show some sort of promise. And despite even though there are a lot of people who may not be able to. Um, practically have the medication for those that can um it's it's nice to be for as a from a clinician standpoint to be able to offer something yeah you know to say like you know this isn't going to you know be life-changing but this might slow the progression some um and to those patients who don't have the means to it you on the other hand you can say you know this would only potentially slow the progression some and there's some concerns about it so yeah you know it's so it, it goes both ways but it's at least nice to have something as opposed to just saying like we don't have anything that can, you know, remotely yeah. make a difference apart from lifestyle changes. Um, I feel like, you know, the good thing about Dinepazil, um, and, you know, in Momantian and whatnot is you don't have to get MRI uh, right. imaging of your brain to make sure there's no <laughs> issues going on. Right. And you can still do this along with this. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But, I mean, if that's all your only option. Like, it's yeah. like at least you're not getting scanned all the time. Right. So, yeah, right. I agree. I, and, and at least there's not as much or nearly as much controversy around this one like there was with the last one. Right. And so. I think people have, you know, the the companies and the researchers have to take some chances and push some of this stuff to move things yeah, forward, to breed sure. other people looking into something that would hopefully be better and then yeah. uh, get them out, you know. One thing, just to kind of throw this in there, we were talking about before we started recording, but it's kind of interesting because they also looked at, as like secondary um kind of endpoints they were looking at changes like in the MMSE for example and uh, it's just kind of interesting because like when you look at depending on which study you're looking at there's not like an agreed upon sort of like okay if you have this you know from this score to this score that's mild this is moderate this is severe you know because essentially with that exam in particular I think you have to get less than 21 to get in the moderate range but there's, you know, like for if you look at UpToDate, for example, they say 19 to 26 is mild. Um, and then, you know, moderate 10 to 18 is the higher score means you you got more right on the exam. Um, but there was plenty of patients that were, you know, in not plenty, but there was patients included in the study uh, and, and the and its uh, previously approved drug, the um, adalimumab. What, what's the, uh, not adalimumab, that's um, Aducanumab. Aducanumab, thank you. Um, that had a... MMSE of 30, which is mm-hmm. the perfect score. Right. So it's like, well, those, you know, they may have some imaging, but thinking there's some beta amyloid plaquenil imaging, but they, they're not cognitively impaired right. at all. My to guess, because that, that is, that is true. So that would, that would make the results of this look a little better if those patients didn't progress as much. But I presume that that would be the same with placebo as yeah. well. But to that, I suppose, if a patient, unless it was an incidental finding, had a PET scan, and found amyloid beta plaques and had gone through this whole process of getting going to memory care, even though they may have scored a perfect score, clearly there was something that prompted them to seek treatment for it. Mm-hmm. So that they're, ob- I mean, they were obviously not at whatever their baseline was previous to that, but you're right. That would be the, the mildest of the mild, I would suppose of yeah. patients with Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. The test isn't that intense, right, 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 right. but yeah. you know, I, I imagine I could score at least a 28 and I know th- there is like, um, I know at least on the MOCA, there's some um, caveats that are made depending on level of education. So mm-hmm. like it may be a patient that has a high level of education, is able to score really high on those things, but they still, from their baseline, are cognitively like, impaired, you know. And there's something like like drawing the hands on a clock, mm-hmm. I think is the MMSE. I, I mean, 
I would be <laughs> might not be able to do that one. <laughs> I was going to say I, I know for a fact because my we have a clock in our living room that my wife can literally never read the time on, <laughs> and I make fun of her all the time so she knows doesn't she's care. Calling she, her did, out. she doesn't care that I'm calling her, out. Um, but she's just always she's, she's like I, you know it doesn't have it doesn't have numbers on it. How much? But I give her a hard time all the time because right. she has to stare at it for a second to get the time. But uh, so they're know, not perfect. Yeah, no, tests. by no means. Yeah. So yeah, it's to be interesting to see, and at least at least there at least some kind of progress because it's been a long time. I do want to say that we are in no way Alzheimer's disease or memory experts. We're just we're just uh, I would opining say, on I would say expert, our opinions here. Expert is a is a word we use very lately on, <laughs> on this show. Um, yeah, no, we're not. I, I would be hard pressed to say I'm an expert on much of anything. But that's why we saved this one for last. There we go. Yeah. But uh, yeah, you know, I, I did like our. Uh, our roundtable discussion version of going through that, though, <laughs> as opposed to like having any sort of facts in front of right. us, uh, we just kind of figuring out as yeah, we go. Just sort of, just sort of talking about the drug. Um, we should, we should do a whole episode and just invite people who want to join. We'll just record that, see if it doesn't get out of hand. Yeah, just tell everybody not to look into anything beforehand. Yeah, and just see what happens. We'll <laughs> just, just talk about stuff. Just figure it out as we go on live. So, hope that was uh, somewhat helpful to go through. And and I will mention too, just because I don't want to have anybody calls out for not being thorough, but there there was a, an extended release injectable version of risperidone um, that was approved on January thirteenth, um, approved for schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. I did um, see that. So yeah. biweekly uh, injection for risperidone called Rikindo. So just just you know, we did see that one as well. We just figured that the risperidone wasn't as you know exciting to talk about since we we're probably all familiar with. But at least the active ingredient. And we have other, you know, we've had other long-acting injectable yeah. antipsychotics like in Vega and yeah. stuff like that. So, so not super exciting. Yeah, especially bi-weekly. I'm like, mm. Do we have the second-gen long-acting injectables, though? Yeah, well, no, that is second-gen. Second but the, gen. Uh, oh, second but gen. The, the, I think, I can't remember what the, the Invega, I can't remember what the, the that one's the three-month order, but they have a six-month Invega now, mm. I believe. So it's like, they got, I mean, if I have to go twice a month versus once every six months I'm, yeah. it's gonna be hard pressed yeah so i don't know but yeah that one got approved too so and we're, we're not even through the first month we only got some new drugs new drugs i like it it's gonna be Exciting a good year time for, to be in pharma i guess yeah and not have, necessarily the pharmacy and having a podcast because now we got stuff to talk about again perfect so thank you guys so much for listening hope that was helpful and uh not too uh scatterbrained since that was even worse than our normal shenanigans but uh thank you guys for listening and uh you know if you have any questions comments uh, we'd love to hear them just shoot us an email um they'll be in the show notes and uh if you want more structured versions of of uh lecture style uh topics then check out patreon which is also in the show notes um, patreon.com slash core consult rx and uh, I have all my uh, the the pharmacotherapy lectures that I do for like my PA students and whatnot. I have them um, kind of broken down into to small bite size, usually twenty to forty minute chunks. Um, so I don't know, depending on which version of bite size is, I guess. But uh, they're they're much more structured. You get access to the powerpoints and uh, things like that. So um, check that out if you want to to go through uh, any of that stuff. Um, there's four new diabetes lectures on there. There's a smoking cessation that's actually getting uploaded tonight. Um, so definitely keep adding to that stuff every month and uh, check it out. It's probably the cheapest uh, re- pharmacotherapy review section on the planet, I, I, I got to say. And so check that out. That helps us out as well. And um, uh, any, besides all that, though, we look forward to hearing from you guys if you have anything to say. And uh, also really appreciate you guys still listening to us after all this time. And we'll catch you guys in the next one.